Let's, uh, let's come before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing uh, on the many readings and things we're going to be looking at today. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come before you now, stilling our hearts. Uh, we pray that you will open our minds, open our hearts, so that through your spirit you may change us this morning as we consider together uh, the work, the mighty work uh, that you have done through the Holy Spirit, through your people throughout the ages, but particularly here around the time of the early New Testament church. And so we pray that you will bless us now as we come to sit under your word and listen to what you have to say. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So if you've got one of these or one of these with you, I recommend these are better than these, but um, uh, keep it with you because we're going to be jumping around quite a bit today. Um, I will uh, read our various texts and things as we go, uh, and yeah, so just follow along. Um, we've also given you sort of ample space between each of the little readings. If you want to make notes as you go, uh, feel free to do so. Now, there's a man named Peter Marshall who was the chaplain of the U.S. Congress, and he once said, um, uh, he said, give us a clear vision that we may know where, uh, where to stand and what to stand for, because unless we stand for something, we shall fall for anything. Now, the book of Acts is really a book about God's vision for the church. It's a book that lays out what God wants the church to do, what the church should stand for, and what the church is and isn't going to fall for. And so today what, we, what I want to focus on is um, what happens throughout the book of Acts as God's vision for the church starts unfolding. Now in some ways the book of Acts is a bit like a company strategy induction document. So there's this mission statement at the beginning and then it tells the story of how this mission is being accomplished by God's people throughout the institution of the church. Now, last week, of course, we focused on Pentecost, which was the grand event of the pouring out of God's Spirit on God's people, the, the critical role that that had within the broader redemption story and how that answered all these Old Testament um, kind of echoes and things that, that we have been seeing throughout the series. Um, but today, we're going to change uh, tack a little bit and look at how the story of Acts, the book of Acts as a whole, unfolds. Now, obviously, Acts is a massive book. It's 28 chapters, and so uh, we're going to try and condense the story into the next sort of half an hour and hopefully not lose too much along the way. So let's dig in first and have a look at this mission statement uh, that God gives the church. And so I'm reading here from Acts chapter 1. This is the same passage we, led, we read last time. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power uh, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea uh, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, obviously, this is a passage we read last week as well, and, and it's uh, Jesus sort of predicting that the Holy Spirit was about to be poured out of the church and that he was coming to empower the church to bear witness to Christ, to basically uh, preach the gospel, to spread the good news of Jesus. But what we didn't look at is exactly how that was going to happen. How was that going to play out? And verse 8 here 
actually becomes this kind of mission statement uh, that G- where Jesus exactly outlines what his organization, the church, is going to pursue. He tells us uh, not only what we're going to be doing, that is, bear witness, he also tells us exactly how that's going to happen. Uh, the mission statement is, you will be my witnesses, and the strategy is, Jerusalem first, Judea and Samaria second, and then the ends of the earth. And that ends up being exactly how the book of Acts is structured internally. It follows the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And so we start in Jerusalem in chapter 5. So that's the next passage. Uh, So many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the town surrounding Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those that were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night and said, uh, and said, and said something. So, and said, go and stand in the temple. I don't know why that's not there. Go and stand in the temple and tell the people about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priests and those who were with them arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the, council of, uh, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. Now, notice what's happening here, friends. These apostles, the Jesus' followers, were in Solomon's colonnade. Now, this is part of the temple complex in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit is working so powerfully through them that the sick people are being brought from, uh, from Jerusalem, from the towns around Jerusalem. The demon-possessed are set free. The, those that are sick are healed. And this was having a major effect on the people And it was having a major effect on the power of their witness to Christ. Believers were being added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women, we read. And so these signs and wonders, these uh, these healings, these being set free of of these demonic spirits and stuff, um, in part was there to authenticate the message of the apostles. As they are bearing witness to Christ, they see all these miracles happening. But even though there was this massive outpouring of God's blessing on the people and the gospel was being preached, we see that the opposition to Jesus' message starts rising again. We could be tempted to think now that the Holy Spirit had come, now that Jesus had died on the cross, had had wrestled away the authority over the earth from Satan, uh, had been resurrected as a sign of his victory, that all of a sudden the opposition against God's mission and the gospel would disappear. But in fact, we see the opposite. In the passage just before this one, uh, we see how the church faced problems from inside. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the church leaders and pretended to give more money for the cause of the gospel than they actually did. 
And so they're judged very harshly and instantly for their hypocrisy. So attacking the church from the inside by trying to destroy the unity of the church is one of the strategies that Satan loves to use uh, to stop the spread of the gospel. He's done it throughout all the ages and we see that already in the passage just before this one. And it is precisely for this reason, actually, that the New Testament is so full of instructions uh, for the church to guard the unity of the faith so closely, to guard against heresy and against um, sin in the church so strongly. So that is opposition from the inside against the gospel. But we also see here there's this opposition from the outside starting to rise. In Jerusalem, it came from the high priest and from the, this party of the Sadducees. These were the people who had kind of ruling power in the day. And the gospel kind of enraged them. It directly challenged the power that they hold. No longer did the people have to come to the temple to have access to God. Now, these, these men were saying, these apostles were saying, you can, you can just go straight to God because of Jesus. You don't need the temple system anymore. And so this threat to their power is, is, is big, and so they throw Peter and the apostles into jail to try and stop them, only to find that, uh, you know, Jesus jailbreaks them through an angel. And um, the next morning, they're right back where they were before, preaching the gospel in the temple courts. But I think there's a lesson for us, friends. Living a life of gospel faithfulness is going to result in spiritual opposition. When you set yourself up against the powers of darkness in this world, then the prince of darkness is going to fight back against you. That's just how it works. Satan doesn't care about churches who are inward-looking and ineffective and who don't want to preach the gospel and spread the gospel because they oppose no threat to him. But it is a hallmark of gospel faithfulness in our lives and in the lives of our churches that we experience opposition if we pursue Jesus' mission. If we want to bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, then we will face spiritual opposition. That is kind of a rule of faith. And so if we want to be faithful to Jesus, we should expect that. And in fact, we see that also in, uh, in Jerusalem. This is the, the first martyr. We see the story of Stephen there. And so that's the next passage. Um, and so when they heard these things, uh, they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth at him. So Stephen is preaching. He's preaching the gospel. He's telling the people, you crucified Jesus, and, uh, you, but he's come to set you free. And so they get enraged and they gnash their teeth at him. And then Stephen, um, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together they rushed against him. And they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
And after saying this, he fell asleep. This is what gospel faithfulness might look like for us. There's a story of Stephen, the first martyr. In Acts, this persecution that began as threats against uh, Peter and the other apostles now uh, turned into floggings and imprisonment and now it's turned into death. And in the story of the book of Acts, there is a question being asked of the reader. Do you really want to be like Jesus? You see, Stephen is being highlighted as someone whose life, as he matures as a Christian, looks more and more uh, like Jesus. It mirrors his life more closely. And if you read that passage, you see some of the same sorts of phrases that Jesus used. Uh, You know, don't hold the sin against them. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen is being shown as this, um, as this Christian who is, is a lot like Christ. And the question is being asked of us, do we really want to be like Christ? Stephen reminds us that pursuing Christ, not just as a church, but as an individual, is costly. And in his case, it cost him Everything. It is a life of suffering. And Acts is asking the question, is it worth it for you? It forces us to consider how expensive does the cost of following Jesus have to get before we are unwilling to pay it? To what level of suffering... Do we, do we have to rise before we will abandon our witness to Christ? That's the question before us. And I think this is a question that we need to wrestle with before the suffering actually comes. Before the cost needs to be paid. Because the way humans work is that when we are under extreme stress, extreme duress, we kind of go on autopilot. So we need to have our our scripts in our heads sorted out. The programming of our hearts already needs to have happened so that when we get to the situation that is going to cost us something, we are playing from a predetermined playbook. The best example in scripture we see of this is Jesus himself. On the cross, he's in the middle of suffering God's wrath being poured out on him, And he goes to the place in his heart where he is most familiar. He plays out in autopilot. And what does he say? In the depths of of his suffering, he cries out, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His script is sorted before he gets to the problem. Because when you're in the middle of trouble, in the middle of temptation, in the middle of spiritual assault, you need to have your heart programming sorted. It's the worst time to start thinking about how should a Christian deal with these sorts of things when you're in the middle of them. Now, don't, get what, don't hear what I'm not saying. If you are facing a situation which you are unfamiliar with and you don't know what to do, you should still search your Bible for that. That's, that's true, don't, you know. Uh, But what I'm saying is it is far better for us to be training our hearts before we find ourselves in these situations so that we don't have to worry about it when we get there. You and I need to think now 
about how we are going to handle persecution. Our heart's programming, our script, needs to be sorted. Will we deny Christ? No, we won't. Will we compromise biblical truth? No, we won't. What if it costs us our freedom? No, we won't. What if it costs us our lives? Still no, we won't. What if it costs us the lives of our children? Still no, we won't. Why? Because I counted all as loss in view of the all-surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. That's the script we have to have sorted in our hearts. Now it's unlikely that you and I are going to pay for our faith with our lives. It is unlikely that Dictator Dan's death squad will come looking for me. I think it's far more likely that it's going to cost imprisonment uh, for holding to biblical views, which are increasingly considered far-right-wing extremism, for teaching a biblical view of sexuality, for insisting that marriage is between a man and a woman, for insisting that unborn babies are in fact living human beings. Friends, if we set our hearts on obeying Jesus, on living a faithful Christian life, on bearing witness to Christ, we will face this opposition. It is true that our faith is absolutely free. Salvation by grace is free, but it will cost us to follow Jesus faithfully. Someone once said that worship that costs us nothing is worth precisely what it costs. And so we need to think about this now. So in the book of Acts we see this persecution breaking out against the Christians in Jerusalem. It culminates in the death of Stephen. And one thing that people who persecute Christians don't seem to understand is that it never has the intended effect. Because notice what happens. Uh, the persecution has the exact opposite effect of what the persecuted wanted. So they go, they run, they flee from Jerusalem and they head into Judea and Samaria. And you can read about this in chapters 8 through to 12. I'm going to read here uh, from verse 1 in chapter 8. So this is just after, uh, this is as Stephen is being stoned. Saul agreed with putting him to death. Uh, on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed this Messiah to them. And the crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said. And as they listened, they saw the signs he was performing. And then in verse 8 we read, So there was great joy in that city. 
Now, this is the second stage of Jesus' mission statement, isn't it? They, they leave Jerusalem because of the persecution and they go into the, the surrounding area, Judea and Samaria, the towns around. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and they were, and then Christians got persecuted and now they flee into Judea and Samaria. This is exactly what Jesus had intended. And so they were scattered, but notice what it says. And as they were scattering, they were doing what? They were preaching the word. Philip goes down to the city in Samaria and proclaims the Messiah to them. Now, friends, because we are all theologically astute, because we have all paid attention to Israel's purpose in the Old Testament, we are all intimately aware here of what is happening in the bigger picture story, don't we? Aren't we? No? No? All right. Um, What was the purpose of Israel? It was to bring God's presence, to kind of radiate God's presence and blessing to the nations around them. Remember back to when Israel finally took possession of the land of Canaan. We're talking January this year. I know you forget what we preached the day when you walk out the door, so I know this is hard. But let's think back to January of this year. They take possession of the land of Canaan. Jerusalem is being built. In the centre of Jerusalem is the temple. The innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, is where God's presence is. And the picture was that Israel is in the middle of the known world of the day and they are to radiate God's blessing to the world around them. Do you remember this picture? Some of you remember this picture. Israel there is the red dot and this is the known world. So you've got... Babylon and the area of Cush uh, towards what is your right and then the furthest reaches of the known world, this is uh, in Israel's day, um, in the pink there. So down through to Egypt, across to Greece and then across to Babylon. Israel was the literal centre of the world. And from this literal centre, they had to radiate God's blessing to the world. And so Israel was supposed to be this blessing to the nations. And it is here that we actually for the first time see that Israel is finally doing what they were supposed to do. Salvation was first to the Jews, yes, but now it is to the Gentiles. Not only does the benefits of having God's presence benefit the Israelites, but it's no longer in the middle of the temple, it's in the hearts of his people as they spread from this central place. And actually, the gospel starts spreading like a virus. If you like, Jerusalem is Wuhan, and persecution is the plane, and the disciples are the carriers of the gospel disease. And what is different is, um, but what is different about Samaria and Judea is that unlike the Jews who lived in Jerusalem, the people here had only some knowledge of God. They had the Torah, but not the rest of the Old Testament. So they had some understanding of who God was, but obviously their understanding was incomplete. And this is where Acts gives us a bit of a clue as to our own witnessing strategy, our own gospel strategy, what that should be ordinarily. We reach out to those that are closest to us first, in culture, in likes in worldviews, in understandings of how the world works. And then once we have exhausted those in our inner Jerusalem circle, 
Then we veer into the broader world to those that are still close, but not quite the same. And then once we've exhausted those opportunities, do we reach for the ends of the earth? So Jerusalem is same-same. Judea and Samaria, same-same but different. And the ends of the earth is not same, just different. So who's in your same-same box? These are the people that live in your neighbourhood, who go to your schools, who work in your offices and factories, who play in your footy teams or support the same team you do, those that share your hobbies. This is your Jerusalem, your initial mission field. And you are called to bear witness to them. Because you have access to these people in a way that no one else does. I can't reach them. The church organization doesn't have access to these people. But you do. And so if you're wondering about where to start, start there. Start in Jerusalem before heading out to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. I think one of the difficulties of um, sort of Christendom uh, and the time we live in is that we think that mission work is the ends of the earth work. But we actually forget the strategy that Jesus gave us. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And we think, well, we're not missionaries. We're not ends of the earth type people. And so that's someone else's job. But we forget that before they got to the ends of the earth, they exhausted their Jerusalems and Samarias before they got there. So you and I need to bear witness to Jerusalem. And finally, Acts ultimately gets to the ends of the earth. Now, uh, I'm going to read the rest of the passages. So if you've got your little booklets with you, um, that would be good because I don't think I've got them all up there. So, now that, so Acts 11, verses 19 to 26. Now those who'd been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because Stephen made their way, uh, because of Stephen, made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now notice, same, same but different. Jews but far away. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also. Different, but different, yes? Proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was on them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the grace of God... He was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So just a couple of things to note here. In this intervening time, Saul, who had been persecuting the church, has become Paul, the apostle, who wrote like half the New Testament. So it's worth noting that. The second thing is that they are, that this church in Antioch becomes kind of a major center of Christianity. So it has moved from Jerusalem, where the church in Jerusalem had sort of all the power, 
And now it's kind of split between the church of Antioch, which is big, and the church in Jerusalem. And ultimately, uh, throughout the story, uh, what happens is that the church ultimately plants in Rome, and then you get the, the Roman church, the Antioch church, and the Jerusalem church. And these two ultimately kind of die, and we're left with the Roman church, which is where Catholicism sort of starts radiating from. And so the rest of early church history all comes ultimately from, uh, from the, the western side comes from Rome. So just a few things to note. Chapter 12, uh, verse 24. But the word of God spread and multiplied, and after they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. And then chapter 13. Now the church in Antioch, now in the church in Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So what happens after this is that Paul and Barnabas, they ultimately set their eyes on Rome as the place where they want to go and preach the gospel. But before they do that, they've got all these other places to go to. So they go to Philippi, they go to Galatia, they go to Ephesus, and they plant churches everywhere. Ultimately, Paul gets arrested. Um, he, he appeals to Caesar, uh, which is something a Roman citizen could do. And then in chapter 28, this is the last reading, Paul ends up in Rome and he's in house arrest. And we read there, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house and welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so this ends of the earth part of Acts is a massive part of the book of Acts. And obviously we've just kind of touched on a few things here and there. But notice that the disciples here have moved from same-same and moved from same-same but different to just going into different. They're bearing witness into the ends of the earth kind of world. And God's plan has always been to bring the nations in to his people, the Israelites, to make them his, uh, his people as well. And so Saul, who was there at the stoning of Stephen, becomes the missionary, Paul, to the Gentiles. And he travels all throughout their world. He, uh, but as he does so, he still follows Jesus' strategy set out in verse 1. Now in every town he enters, he first goes to the synagogue, to the Jews, to the jerusalem type people, the same, same people. But what most of the time happens is the people reject him, they reject the gospel, and then he goes to the rest of the city. So he goes to Jerusalem in the city, and then to sort of Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth when he, within each city. But then finally they ran out of places where Jews were. And so they go into cities where there are no synagogues. And so when, what happens then is he just finds a place to preach, he starts teaching, and he tries to find common ways to communicate the gospel. And in each of these places, in many of these places, a church ends up being planted. And so Paul and Barnabas and the other gospel workers, they train up people in these areas. They teach them. Uh, how to obey God. 
he and his fellow workers always appoint elders who then manage the churches, which is the same reason we still have elders today. This seems to be the way God wants churches to be managed. And so they move on. Once the elders are, are taking oversight of the church, they move on to the next town and they preach the gospel, they train up people, they appoint elders, and then they move on again. Ultimately, though, Paul wants to get to Rome. Now, why Rome? Because the ancient world has now changed from when Israel was the centre of the world. Israel is no longer the centre of the world, but Rome is. It's there, you can see. It's in the, in the middle there in Italy, obviously. Uh, Rome becomes the power centre of kind of the known universe. And the ancient world looks like this, with Rome at the centre, a place from which the gospel can radiate, from which God's presence could spread. Now, friends, people often ask, why is it that Jesus was born during the Roman era? Why did God wait 400 years after Israel returned from their exile in Babylon before the Messiah finally came to earth? Well, it's because this had to happen. The Roman Empire had to be built. Rome did something that the rest of the world failed to do. Now, for all their atrocities and cruelties, Rome did some amazing things that were critical to the spread of the gospel. For example, they built roads that could take the message anywhere you wanted to go. Anywhere within that red space you could go via a road or a ship, it was easy to get to. People everywhere spoke at least one language in common, which was unheard of up until this time. Most people had two or three languages in common that they could speak. The roads were safe. There was this thing called the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. Rome ensured that the roads and these, these ways, the, the ways to get throughout the empire, were safe and free from bandits and so on. It is the Roman peace which made travel throughout the empire a possibility. And all of these things were vital to the spread of the gospel. But in the midst of all of this, Rome became the centre of the known world. And so the centre of the world moved from Canaan, which is to the right of that picture, to Rome. And so for Paul to want to get to Rome is a strategic move. He went there because that's where the, where the power was. That's where the influence was. If you wanted to spread the gospel, go to the cities that had the most power where the most people ended up, where the most influence was. Now, throughout his journeys, Paul ultimately suffered greatly, as you know. He ends up being arrested. He wants to go to Rome many times, but he's delayed. He's shipwrecked. The Holy Spirit tells him, don't go now. And ironically, it's only as a prisoner being in chains uh, for preaching the gospel that Paul finally ends up in Rome, having appealed to Caesar. But his court case gets delayed and delayed. And at the end of the book of Acts here, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And you would think that for a missionary that becomes a hindrance, but it's, opposite. it's the opposite of that. There in arrest, he writes to the churches he established, encourages his fellow believers. People come to visit him and they preach the gospel and they establish a great center of faith in Rome itself. And the book of Acts ends 
with Paul there in, uh, in house arrest. And the Bible actually doesn't make clear how Paul ended up dying. But Paul ends up being executed for his faith in Jesus. He had devoted his life to spreading the gospel. He did so strategically, and he did so under the strategy that Jesus gave at the start of the book of Acts. Jesus announced what the mission would be to bear witness to him. But the Holy Spirit would be given so that people had the power to do that. He gave them this strategy, Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And friends, the mission hasn't changed. We are still called to bear witness to Christ. The strategy hasn't changed. We still go to the same, same first, and then to the same, same but different, and then to the different. But the question for you and I is, it's just whether we trust Jesus' strategy and whether we will obey him. Whether we will be a church in Acts chapter 29 or not. Now this church has decided that we are going to commit to that. So I guess the question for you is, are you coming along? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this grand picture of uh, what you are doing throughout the world as you first established the churches, then strengthened them, and then replicated them throughout the world, first in Jerusalem, then Samaria and Judea, then to the ends of the earth. Lord, we thank you because we are the result of the ends of the earth work that you had come to do. And so we pray that you will make us faithful to the, both the mission that you've given us and also the strategy that you've given us. We pray that you will help us through your Holy Spirit to, to do this work, to bear witness to Christ, wherever we might find ourselves to preach the word. Lord, we pray that through the witness also of the individuals within this church, your kingdom might grow, your word will spread, and people will come to faith. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.